Hi, this is Danielle from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 155 of Art for Your Ear. Today's episode has actually been in a holding pattern since last fall. This was a live event that I recorded at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, SMOCA, last November. Have you ever been to Scottsdale? I loved every second of my time there, especially floating in the pool under a palm tree. I mentioned it was November, right? Yeah, I'm Canadian, so I really like being in pools when it's snowing at home. The women who arranged for my visit to Smoka were so fantastic to work with, and they set up this event to do a live record of the podcast. I decided to interview two people, Jennifer McCabe, the director and chief curator of Smoka, and Saskia Jorda, an Arizona-based installation artist who's local to Scottsdale now, but she grew up in Venezuela. Today, you will hear both of their stories and how they got to where they are now. So yes, this was pre-my new format, pre-the podcast being put on hold, and pre-losing my dad. Actually, this was meant to be the episode that went up the weekend that he died. But no surprise, given that I didn't know what was up or down, I was not organized enough to put up a podcast. I have to say, though, I've always been a little annoyed with myself for not sharing this one because it's just so good. But listen to this. The universe has worked in mysterious ways once again. So a couple of weeks ago, I decided that I would finally take this baby out of the vault for this coming weekend. And what did I just find out? Saskia Jorda has just spent the last few days installing her work at Smoka for the very first time. What? Wait, there's more. Guess when the exhibition opens? Yeah, today. Somehow, all of this ended up working out beautifully. So weird. This kind of weirdness leads me to today's installment of, hey... Here's something I was thinking about. Okay, apparently that's what I'm still calling this part of the podcast, so just roll with it, okay? The theme today, ah, messages from the universe. Now, when I was a teenager, I would have rolled my eyes so hard at that, you would not have even been able to see them under my giant 1980s bangs. Why? Well, my mom used to bring up the universe and its mysterious ways all the time. She still does, actually. When I got dumped by my high school sweetheart, my mom said, well, the universe is unfolding as it should. And when I didn't make the elite field hockey team in my senior year, oh, the universe is unfolding as it should. She even used it when things were good, but with a happier tone. I got into the first university of my choice. She said, oh, the universe is unfolding as it should. And when my now husband proposed, oh, the universe is unfolding as it should. Do you notice a pattern developing? Yeah. Now, I have mentioned in previous episodes that I am a complete control freak, so letting the universe unfold as it should has always been a very tough one for me. But as I've gotten older, I have realized that my mom might have been onto something. Here's the thing. Shit's going to happen. So you can buck against it, or you can just go with the flow and learn from what's been put in front of you. Again, whether it's bad or good. Several years ago, probably right after my son Charlie was born, oh my god, I just realized, I probably finally got the whole universe unfolding thing the second that I became a mother. Oh no, I wonder when his first eye roll is going to happen. Anyway, after having a baby, um, I started to truly understand that things are not always up to you, and stuff is just going to happen. In that particular case, all kinds of stuff that you can't possibly imagine is going to happen, But that is a topic for another episode about motherhood. Today is about the universe.
I launched the Jealous Curator in 2009 when Charlie was two and very quickly started noticing patterns, which was really one of the main reasons I needed an art blog back then. You see, I was all over the place when it came to my own artwork. I had no idea what my artistic voice was. I did not have a style. I wasn't even sure what I wanted to say or who I wanted to say it to. I ended up roaming around the internet, as you do, and copying people that I loved. Ooh, embroidery on found images? I will do that. Hold on, abstract collage? Yes, that's going to be my thing. Oh, hey, cat paintings. Yep, yes, I will become famous for painting cats. Oh, my word, it was exhausting. So that was just a really long way of explaining that watching for patterns was initially my main MO for becoming a blogger. And it worked. By writing posts about art that I loved every single day, I built up a collection of coveted images really, really quickly. And, spoiler alert, they were actually all super different. Ten years later, my posts still kind of run the gamut, even within one week. But, again, if you pay attention, you're going to start to see that there are, in fact, a lot of patterns. For example, I am totally drawn to work that has humor in it. I love the color pink. Again, a topic for another day. Portraits always grab me. I love pieces that incorporate stuff that you wouldn't normally see in a gallery, and the list goes on from there. Paying attention to these things that kept coming up over and over and over again made me see, literally, the kind of style that I wanted to create. I wanted it to be funny, to use bold colors, to play with non-traditional materials, and to incorporate people. I wouldn't have to copy anyone else's actual work. I'd make my own based on these patterns that I had searched for and found. Ah, uh, the universe was unfolding as it should. Now, not that you need to start a blog, but I would recommend doing something like this if you're feeling a little bit lost style-wise. An artist friend of mine named Monica Lee used to do a workshop exercise that I'm going to pass along as this week's project. That's going to be at the end of the episode after our trip to Scottsdale, so hang on for that. Anywho, back to my messages from the universe. I realize I sound exactly like my mother, but it's true. Those messages really are everywhere. That's actually how I get the ideas for all of my books. Every time I finish a new book, people say, Oh, what's the next one going to be about? And I always answer, I have no idea. Because I really, really don't. Until I do. I am still a control freak, but I've loosened up enough, well, in this area anyway, to let the universe guide me. If I hear the same topic come up again and again and again, whether while talking to people at book events, over coffee with my friends, or even in comments on social, I take note. Sometimes there's just something in the air, and I believe it's not a coincidence when you keep hearing the same message again and again. I believe it's the universe whispering in your ear. When I was younger, I wasn't really listening. I was just too busy being busy. Not anymore. Now I realize there's lots of answers out there. You just have to be quiet long enough to hear them. A few of the subjects I've noticed over the past decade rolled out in this order. Creative blocks and inner critics. <laughs> yep. Women not being given a proper place in the art world. Uh-huh. And most recently, so many people, apparently, this breaks my heart, were told as children that they, quote, couldn't make art. Yep, that basically outlines everything I've written about to date. So here we are again. I have no idea what will present itself in the next year or so, but I do know that if I pay attention, the universe will point me down the next path. 
Do you know what path you're on right now? If you do, that is fantastic. Keep going. If you don't, that's okay too. The universe will unfold as it should. Just keep your eyes open and try not to roll them at me, okay? Now, I realize that this sounds like an infomercial, but it is not. I promise, I promise. And as cheesy as it sounds, I totally feel like the universe was unfolding when I ended up joining Thrive a couple of years ago. So to be perfectly honest, and Jamie will kill me, I only joined Thrive because my friend Jamie Smith is the founder. Jamie thought it was time for me to take my art more seriously, and she was right. I just figured it would be a nice chat with a small group of other artists, just fun, no big deal. Well, after my first online meeting, I knew something big was about to happen. This aha moment is exactly why I'm so thrilled to have Thrive sponsoring the podcast. They are a perfect fit, and I would never ever take on a sponsor that wasn't. So here's how it works. Thrive is a group that supports female, genderqueer, and gender non-binary visual artists by providing the community and accountability that will help them achieve their goals. Members sign up for the Mastermind program for a year, and meet monthly online with a small group of other artists to talk about their work, their struggles, discoveries they've made, and of course their creative victories. Thrive's motto is make art, meet your people, and do the work. And I say yes, 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 yes to all of that. Check out thriveartstudio.com to learn more and follow them on Instagram at Thrive Art Studio. All right, so let's go to Smoka. I'm going to jump in right after I finish telling my origin story, because you probably do not need to hear that again. Oh, and I also decided to edit out the Q&A session with the audience at the end, because it was really, really hard to hear, and straining while listening to a podcast is so headache-inducing, right? Right. Drives me crazy. All right, let's hop into the pool. Oh, I mean this week's episode in Scottsdale. Oh, I wish there was a pool. Pay attention and see if you notice any patterns emerging within the episode, okay? Ready? Here we go. Um, and so I'm going to invite Jennifer to come up, and we're going to talk a little bit. Well, the way I do my podcast is I love hearing people's stories. So we could just jump right in and talk about the current shows, but we're not going to. No. No. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what you were like as a kid. And if you made art, and if your big dream was to grow up and be a curator. No, actually, I wanted to be a veterinarian um, as a child, or maybe a singer, but I didn't have the talent. Or a singing so veterinarian. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> a niche. Yeah, a niche. <laughs> For sure. Um, no, but my mother is an artist, and so I was raised by an artist. I never thought of myself as an artist, because she is an amazing draftsman. She can draw anything. She can draw people, objects, and I couldn't do that. I didn't have those skills. So I thought, she's an artist, I'm not an artist. Um, but what she did teach me was to look and to observe things and to think about what I was looking at. So um, she would point out architectural details in buildings. Uh, she would take us to museums when we traveled and we, she would point out the artists that she recognized and we would talk about work. So I feel like I kind of learned about looking like you would when you're drawing. You really look at something um, to take it apart. Yeah, and appreciating what you were seeing. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Um, what does your mom think of what you're doing now? Oh, she's proud. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> she I was thought... always supportive. Yeah. Um, my father, not so much, but um, he, he's a businessman. So he thought, 
you know, I should go into business probably. And, you know, in a way he was right. I should have done art and business at the same time. That would have been really brilliant. Um, so but what did you do? Did you study art history? I first studied, um, I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography. And then I did a Master of Arts in Art History. Wow. And I'm currently working on my PhD in wow. Art History. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, okay, that's interesting that you would pick photography because that's truly looking. Right. Wow. Plus it's not drawing. Although I did, <laughs> <laughs> I did have a, a drawing instructor tell me that I was pretty good for a photographer. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a t-shirt too. Right. Pretty good for a photographer. Right. Um, wow. And so when you studied art history, mm -hmm. um, was that with a plan to become a curator? No. Oh. No, never. But I took an AP art history class in high school that um, obviously had a big impact on me. Um, and we, funny enough, we had the Janssen book of art history, right? Ooh. And the time I was in high school, it was, it was definitely the second edition. And so Janssen was first published in 62, 1962. Yeah. And the second edition or third maybe was like 1986. Yeah. Um, and that was I the had. first time they introduced women into the history of art. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there weren't very many. I remember doing a project on Mary Cassatt. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Mine was on Frida Kahlo. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so within your master's, were you able to, to study anything about women? Like, could you get more specific if you wanted to? So, yeah, I always, so the, I think the, the project on Mary Cassatt was an obvious, like, natural for me that, that started a pathway. Um, but then when I, after I finished the base level art history courses, I went, I was at Arizona State and here, Arizona State University, and I took an art history course by Betsy Fallman that was Women in Art. Mm. Um, and our textbook for that course was Women, Art, and Society by uh, writer Whitney Chadwick, scholar and writer. And I ended up, so that was really influential, seeing, looking back at the whole history of art and studying all the women who had been kind of overlooked, um, learning about the reasons why there weren't so many artists, um, because there wasn't the education for women that was available for men and those kinds of things. And then for my master's, I ended up studying with Whitney Chadwick. So it was, wow. it was kind of a full, full circle, well, almost full circle, because now I'm studying with Betsy again for my PhD. Wow, that's amazing. Um, okay, so you went in with no plan to be a curator. You are now right. a curator. Right. Well, how, how did that happen? Well, um, I guess after my undergraduate degree and then living through how do you make a living as a photographer, and not as a commercial photographer or something really useful, <laughs> but a fine art degree business in photography. Here comes the businessman. Yeah. Yeah. So I flailed through that for a while. And then I started to try to find what my passion was. What, what will really get me up in the morning? What will I want to do for a long period of time? And I kept coming back to art history. So I started looking at museum jobs and I realized to do anything in a museum, you needed a master's degree at the very least. So that's what I set out to do. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't until I was in that moment, I think, that I realized, first I thought I'll be an art historian, um, but I really loved working with artists. I really loved that energy of being around artists. So I knew I didn't want to study too far back about people who had lived before. I wanted to kind of be in that moment. And so in that sense, I guess curating made Mm -hmm. made a good deal of sense. Yeah, That's what I found with the podcast is that I love hearing the stories now, mm -hmm. you know, and they're alive. I can ask them whatever I want, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and so that's what's so interesting is, is, you know, being able to delve into their stories and then you get to 
right. display their work. Right. Um, so you've been here for a couple of years now, right. mm -hmm. and you have done such a good job. Like I was researching, like the past shows, mm -hmm. so much amazing work, and so much of it by women. Right. Um, so there was just a couple that I pulled out that I thought were looked really cool. Um, you're going to have to help me with some mm -hmm. of the names. Sure. Lydia Okamura. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> such an interest. So, did you bring that show in? So I brought that show in, and we were doing uh, we were doing amazing work before I started here. Smoka was, um, but yes, the, I didn't curate the show, but I saw it was a traveling exhibition. Another young uh, curator, Rachel Adams, pulled that show together, and it's just exactly what I think is important about being in the arts now is. Going back through those histories, uh, Lydia Okamura was an, is an artist. She's still very much alive. Um, the exhibition highlighted work from the 70s and 80s. So, and the work is it's minimalist, it's conceptual, it's all these things that we're used to studying. But nobody knows who she is as an artist. And she had a lot of success in Brazil. That's her home country. She, she's Brazilian of Japanese descent. Um, so it's kind of unearthing some of these artists. Some some still very much alive and uh, presenting their work in the context in which it, it should be. Um, mm -hmm. It's a very important artist that we that we don't know about. So I, I feel strongly about those kinds of exhibitions. Mm -hmm. And so do you look for those that are traveling that you can bring in or do you, and, and you sometimes get to create your own right. situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So but the, we do a good mix of both. Right. And so um, there was another one. Um, Oh, the Contemporary Women Artists from Aboriginal Australia. Mm -hmm. That looked amazing. That was fantastic. And um, that's another interesting thing. For me, it really revealed my own bias about what is contemporary art, uh, because these are, these are artists working today. They're absolutely contemporary, but we don't think of them in the contemporary art world realm, right? So it revealed, if, if I have that bias and I'm kind of deep in the art world, like a lot of people probably hold that bias. Um, I previously worked at the Museum of Craft and Folk Art, so it's it's a similar thing with with craft and with artists who are untrained. Um, and I think that there is value and worth to the work that they're doing mm -hmm. that deserves to be shown to as many people as possible, mm -hmm. so that we can kind of break through those those boundaries that are have were kind of pre-existing. Yeah, you know what's so interesting about the I I haven't done my masters, but I when I was thinking of doing it, I was thinking I would love to explore the whole craft versus art. Mm -hmm. thing because mm -hmm. it's crazy it gives mm -hmm. me a headache just thinking about it um but like quilts for example very often you know it's women and it's quilts um but there's an artist um Terrence Payne he's from Minneapolis mm -hmm. I love him he does these huge um, large-scale drawings um they're very graphic like graphic designy mm -hmm. um but he's just started making quilts but be the okay just stay with me here but mm -hmm. the fact that he's a man making quilts their art, but if I write about a lot of women that do soft sculpture and stuff, and it's kind of considered a craft because they're women, but if a man <laughs> was making the exact same thing, like Natalie Baxter makes um, stuffed guns with like tassels on them and stuff, they're hilarious and amazing and whatever. And, and I mean, they are considered fine art and she shows in galleries, but because it's women, they're almost considered craft. But if a man made them, they wouldn't be. So. I think that's like a huge thing we all have to kind of like step over and get over, but it's just so ingrained. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just had to say that out yeah, loud. I don't expect of, you to say anything. Institutional, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 
And, and I'm guilty of it too, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was just when I interviewed Terry and he was talking about these quilts that I said, oh, have you had anybody say, oh, heading into the crafts? And he was like, no, but he said, I wonder if I'd started doing mm-hmm. the quilts if I would have been put in that camp immediately, but because he's shown in galleries and he's shown in the fine art world, mm-hmm. now that he's doing quilts, they're just part of his body of work. Right. This is a really interesting it's great, conversation. Though, that he can work in quilts. And yeah. Be, you know, so that's, that's one step forward, yes, right? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's talk about the two exhibitions that are here right now. Sure. Um, kind of along these lines, um, I'll first mention this series that the New York Times started, which is called Overlooked, in which they are repopulating the archive of obituaries with important female artists, musicians, writers, things of that sort. So one of one of those obituaries was Belkis Ion. That's the exhibition that we have now. It's a traveling exhibition. She's a Cuban artist. Um, she had a short but really productive and brilliant career. She's a master printmaker. She, um, at the pinnacle of her career, was in the Venice Biennial, um, which is what many artists aspire to be on that kind of world stage. Um, and so for us, it's a pleasure to have these works here. They're large scale, they're beautiful, they're black yeah. and white and graphic and haunting. They are, they're, they're have you guys seen this show? They're beautiful and sad and like, take your breath away, but just dark at the same, like mm-hmm. they're amazing. Mm-hmm. I love the story about, about Venice. About her riding the bicycle to yeah. get to the airport. Yeah, she yeah. had to ride her bike to get to the airport, and her father was behind her mm-hmm. on another bike with the artwork. She made it to the airport on time. He didn't. Mm-hmm. So she flew to Venice without her work, and then he shipped it, and it arrived like hours before mm-hmm. the, the opening. And the work is here. You'll notice it in one of the galleries because it juts out from the wall. And that I heard from uh, the curator of this exhibition was because the ceiling wasn't quite as high as they thought it was. So she kind of cut the work. I mean, it's naturally in segments, but she cut it at a certain point and made it come out from the wall so it would fit in the space. Oh, my God. And And it works. It totally works. And then she (laughs) went on and did more work like that that came Mm -hmm. out into the space, right? Happy accident. Yeah, she was really probably one of the only printmakers who was working in installation and really trying to engage the viewer in these different ways. Yeah, they're just amazing. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, it's just across the way. Go and go and look. Mm-hmm. And then the other show is um, Double Agents. Right. And it's a husband and wife, right? That's right. Yeah. A husband and wife. Uh, Pedro Reyes, who's well-known in the visual arts world, and his wife is Carla Fernandez. She's a fashion designer, and she's very well-known in fashion. And they don't usually collaborate, um, although I'm going to take credit for this. They just recently um, (laughs) were honored with the Visionary Design Award for the uh, Miami Design. So they'll be... um, They'll be presenting a project for that in December, and I, I told them, you know, that's clearly because we put together an exhibition with both of that's you. That's right. Now people are seeing you as this kind that's of dynamic right. duo. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, for me, I, I thought their, their practice, while very different and totally different realms, um, they're both really looking at social change and how you can make change in, with, with the tools that you have available to you. So Pedro's working, and the project that we're showing is with uh, decommissioned guns turned into musical instruments, so really trying to address um, uh, gun violence and problems with gun control. And Carla works with indigenous artists all over Mexico um, that are, the work that she does with them helps to sustain these textile techniques that are hundreds of years old that without having um, 
a business or making money from their work, they can't, they can't continue to do it. And it's a problem that we see all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's been recognized for the importance of her, her business model and how it's, it's good for the environment, it's good for the communities. Um, and it's really against the rest of the fashion industry, right? That's yeah. more about cheap labor, cheap clothing, fast. Yeah, that's amazing. Was, did she show in Venice? I feel like I just saw her work somewhere. She um, she just did a runway show at the Victoria and Albert Museum oh, in London, wow. um, which hopefully is career catapulting. Yeah, um, they're both from Mexico City. I don't think I mentioned that, but uh, yeah, it's great. So the, there's a series of photographs in the gallery uh, by an indigenous woman artist, also from Chiapas in Mexico, that she collaborated with. Um, so there's a lot of uh, women love in that gallery. Yeah, love it. <laughs> yes. Um, and speaking of which, so there is a, a local artist mm -hmm. sitting right here who's mm -hmm. going to come up and talk. Were you curating when she... Well, uh, no, and actually I'm developing an exhibition for next year that is based in my dissertation, so that it has a, a, a good amount of feminist art from the 70s and 80s, um, but I really wanted to bring it up to today also, so um, I asked a few artists to make new work for the exhibition, and it was important for me to have a, an Arizona-based artist, somebody locally, so Saskia is, is that artist, and I'm Super thrilled that she said yes, and we'll be working with her and showing new work next year. Yay! Yay. Perfect segue. So, Saskia, thanks, Jennifer. That's Thank you. Great. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so now we have to start with your childhood too. <laughs> so you're actually you live here now, but you're from Venezuela. Yes. And so, uh, when you were little, were you making art? Yes, pretty much. Ever since I can remember, I had a color pencil in my hand. And it wasn't really because my parents are artists, um, but they, um, I think they're responsible, whether they like it or not, for me ending up <laughs> being an artist. Um, they love to travel, and my mom worked in an airline, so we were really lucky. Um, as a child, I, I got to travel all over the world, and um, that's been a huge reason and influence in why I make artwork today. And also, they always encourage my madness in some way or another. If I was in a restaurant and needed paper, they brought napkins. <laughs> if I needed color pencils, you know, they got me color pencils. And so they, uh, or took me to museums to see art everywhere we travel. The museum was like always a stop, and usually more than one museum. Um, so from a very early age, I was exposed to art, and I, I always thought, oh, yes, maybe I'll be an artist, but I was always kind of abstract. Right. Um, and I think then, for everyone it is. Yeah, I think it, it was, was very like, abstract. Thought, you yeah. know, and my mother had this very romantic idea that if I was going to become an artist, um, they never talked me out of it, which was good, uh, or not so good, I don't know. <laughs> um, but she thought I'd be like wearing a beret and a, you know, painter's palette and painting on an easel. And, you know, of course, I have my easel sitting in the garage somewhere. Yeah. And I turned out to be a very different kind of artist. So to this day, she still kind of wonders about what went, you know. <laughs> Where are the landscapes? Yeah, what, what happened? The landscape? Yeah, well, how did it go the other way? But I also, um, as a child, I was also influenced by my grandparents. Um, I spent a lot of time with um, my grandmother who... Um, also not an artist, but did these things that, like, 
are very repetitive, like um, washing my laundry and making my food and all that, that, that also have fueled like how I work in a process. It's kind of hard to explain. But, and then my other set of grandparents, my, my grandmother was a seamstress and my grandfather a carpenter. So working with the hands was always, I mean, um, all my grandparents were very much about working with the hands. And I think that that has a huge uh, influence on my process, my repetitive process nowadays. Um, and all your that, materials. Yeah, my materials yeah. are very much, you know, fabric and wood and, and felt and uh, recently. And I, it wasn't always like that. I mean, when I, um, after finishing high school, I was at that crossroad, whether like, should I be an artist or my, my, the main thing I wanted to be was a biologist, kind of like you, at more like genetics. Start our own um, business. Yeah, <laughs> more into genetics. And then I was like, because I thought, well, if I go to um, school for art, am I going to not have, I mean, I do art as fun. Will it stop being fun if, uh, if it's a profession? And I was really afraid that it would not be fun anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, I registered like an undeclared major here at ASU and, um, and quickly the first semester, I was like, no, I, I need to. I started taking both the biology and the art and I wanted to double major and then I just quickly realized I just need to go in the art and maybe I can incorporate biology or biological processes into my art. And I also realized that, okay, if I wanted to be a biologist and particularly sci uh, geneticist or however you say it, I would spend a lot of time in a lab. And how was that any different than spending time in a studio, you know, <laughs> by myself mixing things? And, <laughs> and they both kind of don't really get paid that much. And there were all these parallels. And I thought, well, I might as well go with the one. You know, my mom always said, follow your heart. And my heart was following the art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For so sure. um, that's kind of how I ended up in the studying. And how, when did you come from Venezuela to the States? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I skipped a whole No, that's okay. I didn't chapter. ask. I feel like I've had two lives. Um, my life in Venezuela, which feels like really distant in the past, and then my life post-moving. <laughs> um, I came in the mid-90s. I was 16, and so I came and I finished um, the last two years of high school here, which was very surreal. I mean, I grew up in a... Um, crazy urban environment, uh, very dangerous city, and going to Catholic school, all girls Catholic school that was sort of run like the military in a way, and then came here to like the school that felt like an episode of Saved by the Bell. Yes, you know? like, like, football, pep rallies. I had a locker, <laughs> I, I like would walk from one classroom to the next, I could be friends with my teachers, like what was that all about? It was totally, like I, I thought, where's the camera? Somebody's got it, somebody's probably taking, you know, filming me, I'm in an episode of something. I am on Saved by the Bell. Yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, the cool Every, kids. The American dream. The cool kids, the, 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 I was like, you know, I fit into like the foreign exchange student category. <laughs> people ask me, oh, you're from Venezuela. Did you like grow, you know, cocaine? Uh, is that how your parents got here? Like I got yeah, for weird sure. questions. Yes, and, yeah. you know, of course I said, oh, yeah, sure. That's what I had for breakfast. <laughs> what kind of question is that, right? Anyway, or the, I would get asked, like, where in Africa is that? And so oh. I was just like, oh. okay, but I just not even talk about yeah. <laughs> that. And so it's very funny, like, that, that transition. Um, Did you like it, or were you wanting to go home, or were you excited about the new... I was excited. Yeah. It was a new adventure. Um, I had come to the U.S. previously a few times, so I had been in Arizona once before I mean, we moved, and I loved it. Um, my friends... That was the hardest part, leaving my friends behind. Uh, I'm an only child, so I, it wasn't, you know, it, it was kind of 
I still had all my parents' attention when I came here. <laughs> that wasn't the, the problem. Of, I guess I was missing my friends more. And in high school, where it's kind of a critical um, age to move, and everybody had their cliques here. And so, obviously, going into the art department and taking art classes really helped because I was kind of an art kid and foreign exchange student. I took French, and you know, I always hung out with all the people that were from somewhere else. Um, and I, you know, I've heard that from so many people that um, that the art room was their savior. Yeah. You know that they spent so much time in there, and then you met the other art kids, and like there, I have heard countless stories like that. And yeah, um, somehow they were more accepting of like, you know, that I had an accent and that I, you know, spoke funny or interpreted things in a funny way or, um, yeah. And so going to school here was really uh, a fun experience because it was so different too than my, you know fear-based Catholic school experience. Right. All of a sudden, I felt like, oh, maybe I can be an artist, you know? The art teacher here um, was always encouraging, make, a draw make art, like real art. We weren't making just little samples. We were right. actually build, uh, making portfolios, taking slides. She said, apply to college, all these things. Mm -hmm. So she, she really pushed me and helped me to apply for school. And, and, and so when you went to art school, what did you focus on? Was it like installation and sculpture or what were you doing? No, I was drawing and painting, oh. totally 2D um, in at ASU. Yeah. yeah. And all the way through? All the way through, wow. graduated drawing and painting. Uh, I took one fascinating class, Betsy Fallman, I, uh, the women, uh, the uh, history course that Jennifer was describing. And it was probably the first art history class I didn't fall asleep in. <laughs> All my art history classes were like three hours long and at night and dark. And you know, the, so, those are um, the coziest rooms on the campus. Those art history rooms, except for so Betsy's. Cool. I mean, they're still dark, but she was so passionate and so like wild about her, her, um, the artist she was describing that it was impossible to fall asleep. It was just so. It, it made me realize that oh well, maybe it is possible to, to pursue art as a career. Mm -hmm. um, okay, but yeah. then you went on and did your master's Yeah, I in took New a York. couple of years off. Oh, okay. Um, and at that point, I started dating my husband. Um, and we were working out in Texas in a studio. It was the first time I had like set up a studio. And we were like, you know, these going on an adventure. And then I, after a couple of years of saving and all that, I decided it was time to go back to school. Uh, I was a little bit burnt out after underground. I said, no, now I'm ready to go back to school. So I applied, and of course I applied to the furthest possible place. It was like, there were like three places in my list, and I applied to one local because we were living in Texas, and the place I really wanted to go was School of Visual Arts. And I didn't hear for a while, in New York City, and I didn't hear for a while, and the week before we were getting married, uh, they called me and they said, you got in. And I, was, I looked at him, and. <laughs> looked at me and he just nodded like, yes, you have to say yes, like you can't say no. So That's how you know you should marry that one. Yeah, so we got married, <laughs> we got married and then uh, quickly after, you know, went to go do or uh, investigate, you know, where to live and all that and moved that summer and he was still working in Texas so he kept flying back and forth and I started school and it was a great way to um, experience New York in the context of art school. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would have chosen to just move there without some sort of a mission. Yeah. Because yeah. it's such an a anchor. crazy place. Yeah. And, and so, like, harsh in a way, you know? And so, 
going to SVA was also an eye-opening experience. For, um, for that school, you didn't have to declare a specific major, you just an MFA. And so that was another reason I liked their program, because I couldn't decide. I was all over the place. I'm printmaking and drawing and painting, and I was just wanted to try it all. And um, I started doing my two little, my 2D paintings. I felt clueless. I, I was like, ah, I'm the happy artist from Arizona that makes work that um, is happy about making work. And in New York, everybody was like, what does it mean? <laughs> and what gallery represents you? And you don't know these people from art history? And you I know, could have lent I, you my sweater set. Yeah, I, I felt like, I felt so like, I, I felt like I was going into, um, uh, what's it called when you're in the military and you start? Um, boot camp. camp. Boot camp, yeah, it was art boot camp. <laughs> I just, I feel like, oh my gosh, I have so much to catch up with here. And so, you know, I started going to every museum, every gallery, every opening. I had one teacher, I was so uncomfortable at the openings, and one of my teachers said, you are, when you go to openings, you have to talk to at least three people. You, you can be like a fly on the wall, but you have to come out of that. You have to talk to at least three people. One could be like, oh, excuse me, when you bump into somebody. <laughs> Check. One yeah. could be like, thank you, if they give you a glass of water or wine. And the other one will try to make some sort of like exchange, <laughs> you know, conversation. So, okay, I, I was working on that. And, you know, now I'm not like shy at all talking at openings. But uh, it, was, it was kind of a boot camp. Um, yeah when it came to that. But the other thing is the art school, I, I felt like I was learning so much from my peers, or as much from my peers as from my instructors, yeah. uh, my professors, who were all very busy practicing artists. Um, that was eye-opening too, you know, they weren't just like um, trying to teach me, they had busy studio right. practice. Yeah. Um, did, did you... Okay, I'm trying to figure out when you started doing the crazy work that you're doing now. So I started in grad school. <laughs> okay. I started in grad school. I like I remember my first open studio, you know, here I go with my little paintings and my prints and all that and I put them all on the wall and I had this teacher, Peter Coyne, who's like one of my idols. And she was like, What if what if you pull something? What if what if this little thread comes out and like it goes over here and like <laughs> it drops and somehow it's like is that possible? <laughs> like, nobody told me I could do that, you know? Like, I'm, I'm working like, within this square and, here. And yeah. I was like, like, and it went crazy. I remember my parents came to visit, and I had embroidered tea bags that came off the uh, floor. I had painted the floor. <laughs> there were yarn balls. There were stuffed felt things. There was just everything was happening. And my mom said, well, how do you hang this? <laughs> so my parents were so scared. Like, I think they were just shocked that something had happened. They sent their little girl to New York, and all of a sudden... The beret is off, people. Like, the beret is off. It was just all wild and crazy. It came off the wall, and then the wall was never enough for me again. It had to be somewhere in space. It had to be dangling. It had to be suspended. It had to be on the floor. Um, it just, I couldn't get back to 2D for a long time. Until... Oh, and then I explored, like performance arts, wearing the things that I was making and taking them out on the street or doing this kind of very silly stop motion things that like just they were nonsensical, no plots, no narratives, just me wearing these things and making drawings in, in the air. Um, and then I graduated and I was like, what, what do I do now? Like I just, I, I can't, I'm not a performance artist. I'm, I, I, I can't, I don't, I was just, 
I felt like I had to unlearn everything I had learned in grad school because everything that got drilled in me was what does it mean? And somehow I felt I had reached this point where I no longer had joy making the work. I just was trying to figure out what does it mean? And how do I get into that gallery and that gallery? And everybody's getting picked up by a gallery and here's me. And I'm wearing silly knitted hats and walking around the street with the ball of yarn. And I just didn't, nothing was clicking. So. Of course, then there, then there was the ordeal of finding a studio post-graduating in New York City. And then, you know, it's like, okay, five of us went in to rent this one space, and we each got 100 square feet. And of course, when you have small space, you want to make really big work. <laughs> and so I, I was like, I'm going to go back to drawing. Let me go back to my roots. And I started drawing butterfly genitals of all things. Uh, so I had sure, this I big, can totally see. I can big see the pieces line. of paper, you know, five feet, six feet, and, and on my desk, they didn't fit on my desk, and I'm blowing these genitals up, and color pencil, and I'm just like, yeah, this is brilliant. This is the <laughs> next big, big thing. It's going to take me into the gallery world. I'm just, I feel it. I've just hit that niche, you sure. know? And yeah. so, and then I had a show in the student gallery, and one of the galleries that somehow I had met the uh, owner of one of these Chelsea galleries. And somehow he happened, to, I helped him with something, working in some show. And then I invited him to the show and he came and he looked at them. He had a very close look and he was like, why? <laughs> this is so mediocre. Like just like flat out. It was like that moment you had like, uh, I, you know, I walked out. I was like, I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna. He doesn't deserve my tears. And I, you know, walked away, whatever. And that just set me on this track. Like, I can't draw. Why? What's the purpose? It's so mediocre. I'm never gonna. Uh, blah 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 blah. <laughs> and it just was like downhill for a while, um, until I got into a few residencies. And then one year I did like these three residency or two residency programs that kind of make me think like okay, maybe I can make art again. And I started with the um, making things that were like wearable and kind of could interact and that kind of led to another installation and then another installation. And then certain patterns started emerging about my work that I would always like start with the individual and then do a project that was more like collective and then back to individual and then back to collective and so on. And did you find the joy And I still again? hear that voice. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I've, I found the joy in the repetitive uh, process, word, process yeah, yeah, yeah. that I make, but every time I draw, I think about that like you think this mediocre? is still the mediocre. Yeah, it's like this isn't that good. Which is a big reason why I haven't shown a lot of drawings in the uh, last, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, so I'm kind of excited about this uh, new show because I, I I want to do something where it incorporates 2D work and 3D and wearable stuff and all like. That's like make amazing. up a more of an immersive and just see if I can just finally get over that. Put that voice like out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Away. It, yeah, <laughs> and it is such a hard thing to do, but you're obviously like, it didn't stop you. No. You're still making. I was like, I can't give him the pleasure. No, no, I know, I hear you. And uh, that's what I wish I had done. One of the quotes from Creative Block that I love so much is an artist named Amanda Happe, she's from Toronto. And I asked her how she deals with negative criticism, because it's going to happen, right? And um, not everybody's going to love everything you make. And she said, you know, the great thing is you don't have to care, because no one can wrestle the pencil out of your hand. You get to keep going in absolute defiance. 
And when I read that quote back from the interview that I was on my couch, I burst into tears because I realized that I had let that prof, I put my paintbrush down for 15 years. He didn't put my paintbrush down. I did. And it was my responsibility to pick it up and go again. And I didn't. And you did. And Maybe yeah, not butterfly. I, it wasn't gently. a color pencil. I, I picked up. Yeah, I, I haven't drawn the butterfly genitals since. But you know, maybe I should make a, like a little coloring book, and that could be my go-to. Yeah, like, there you go. I think you need to bring up. those back somehow, just to somehow, own it. Somehow. Just to own it. Yeah. Well, you know, that was a funny thing. I've never liked labels, and everybody's like, "Oh, what do you do? I'm an artist." And that just doesn't feel like the right label. I can't say I'm a drawer because I sound like a piece of furniture. Uh, an installation artist, what does that mean? A painter, do you paint houses? Like I get yeah. all these weird, you know, so I've never found like what the title is, maybe maker of useless objects at some point. Or how to, I'm like, uh, I've mastered uh, inefficiency in terms of like my time. Um, you know, there's all these things, you know, I I'm, I'm working on, on my post-apocalyptic card. skills. Um, just like, I just kind of haven't figured out what the label, but one day I was standing in New York in the post office looking at my you know, butterfly genitalia book, of course, doing my research while I was waiting in line, because in New York, there's a line for everything. And so I was reading, and somebody asked me, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm a lepidopterist. And she looked at me like, wow. And there were no more questions. And I thought, that's it. That's a great title. I can just, like, throw it out there. I'm a lepidopterist, and nobody will question that. that? Uh, somebody who studies butterflies. Yeah. Um, there you so, go. but see, nobody will really like question yeah. that. But when I say I'm an artist, they're like, "Oh, so what do you do?" And I'm like, "How do I explain?" Um, I wrap I things in yarn. <laughs> it's just too hard to explain uh, sometimes what I do because I'm also a little bit all over the place, you know. Well, speaking of wrapping things in yarn, yeah. one thing that I noticed, and I mentioned this to you before we talked, was um. The red thread, there's a lot of red thread in your work, and you're even wearing a necklace with red thread right now. So does the red thread, is there a reason why it's always around? Or is it just your favorite color? Like, well, what? Yeah, I, it's been, I've been obsessing with red for a while now, but then I was, when you asked me that earlier, uh, I was thinking about it, and red has always been in my life somehow. When I was little, my, that's my mother's favorite color. And of course, when I was little, I had pink and purple and all these other colors, but I always drew my mom in a red dress with red fingernails. And hmm. somehow I only gave her four fingers and they had, red, you know, big red fingernails. My dad was always blue, his hair, you know, parted one way. And, but it was like this iconic thing. My mom's always red, her fingernails are always red, my dad's always blue. And so there was this like red presence in my life. And then um, because we traveled so much, we, I, I had this fascination for maps, and maps are a huge part of, of uh, my kind of one of my res- research and resources, and that I go to for inspiration. And so the color red was always like the map, the, the direction, the triangulating, the distances, the you are here dot, the communication in some way. It became this kind of communication device. So it's when I finally decided I was brave enough to pick up needle and thread because I avoided that for a lot of years because I thought, oh no, I can't possibly draw with thread. They're going to think I'm like a craft person or all that dialogue's going to come up like woman work and blah, blah, blah and nostalgia. And, but eventually I got over that and I was like, I just want to draw with thread. And so one of the first things I picked up was a red thread and I started making that line. And so it's it's kind of been present uh, in my work since, but then it takes on a different, slightly different meaning in each work. 
depending. Um, however, with that said, I mean, I have an obsession for red shoes and I red know, accents red shoes and right now. Yeah. red things, but for this like new series, I, I, I think I want to use other colors. Whoa. I think I need more color Whoa. in my life. You, you heard know? it here first, folks. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I definitely want to branch out, you know, maybe pink. I don't Ooh. know. My daughter's really into pink right now. So, um, yeah, but so red, it's always, it, to me, it speaks of a color of mapping too. And, that, and mm -hmm. that's, that's. That's what I wondered when I saw it. I thought, I wonder if it's like borders or, yeah, but it's in all maps. Oh, somewhere. and the borders. You asked yeah. me about borders early. That's something um, where it comes from. I started looking back and I was thinking about moving to the U.S. And one of the things that I, it wasn't like culture shock because I was already familiar, you know, with the culture. But something that was striking was this idea of personal boundary and personal space. And you know, in Venezuela, I lived in a building that I needed like five keys to get into my apartment. You know, you lock and you lock and the multi-lock and the fence and the bars and everything. And, and yet the idea of personal space is almost non-existent. People are like, you know, on top of each other when you're making a uh, standing in line, everybody's like pushing the traffic, you know, there's three lanes, but it turns into four. So the, the idea of personal space is, is very like blurry there. And then, and yet then I move here and it, it's this contradiction. There's like so much space and I ne only need one key to get into my house. Like, and I don't even have to lock it because it's safe enough that if I forget to lock, you know, I could still like be okay. And, um, but yet there's this like, safety zone that people people respect your like personal space everything's an arm's length um is the safety zone people wait in line in orderly fashion you know traffic is like people they're not like bumper to bumper well sometimes but um <laughs> you know that so that idea of the the safety zone on the personal space kind of led me to look at um how that extends from an individual to a collective so my own personal space and how does that trickle down or up whatever direction to um, your house borders, your city borders, your country borders, and then the conflicts between that and our perceptions mm. about personal space and how they affect our perceptions of our borders. And, you know, are we welcoming of the people or, or are we putting our hands like, no, can't come in. And now in particular, you know, it's such a heavy topic that, and, you know, keeps just fueling my work. I mean, mm -hmm. it goes away for a while and then it comes back and then it goes away and it comes back. Mm -hmm. That's what I wondered when I saw, that's the first thing I thought when I saw it. And the, but the work I was looking at was from 2016. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy because I thought it was about right now. It's just so interesting that, you know. It's kind of cyclical. Yeah, very it much. It keeps, very keeps much. coming back. Um, and then quickly, I wanted to talk about one more thing before we finish up is, um, you're a mom. Yes. So I hear from lots of people who are mothers who want to be artists who say, well, I can't be an artist because I'm a mom. Whew. I have women in here that have four and five kids because I wanted to show that, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> and so um, when you had your daughter, did it cause like that moment of, because you don't really realize how much a baby takes up until you have one. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I'll never leave my house again. Um, did you have that moment? Like, how have you continued to make art? Just three now, right? Yes, yeah. just so, turned three. So how, how was that transition for you? So actually, I, um, before she was born, I, well, when, when I just found out I was pregnant, I was terrified of telling anybody in the art world. I was like, 
you know, I was wearing bigger clothes. I'm like, what if they find out? Then I'll never get a project again because they'll look at me and they'll be like, mom, she can't handle making artwork. You know, new baby, like I had all these fears, like, okay, am I gonna be able to pull this off? At some point they'll notice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't just stop going to events, <laughs> um, you know? And so I had this like anxiety because in the art world, you are just not supposed to do both things somehow. I don't know. Maybe that's, it's gone or maybe there's still a little bit of stigma in there in my head, at least in my head it was at the time. And then it, the funny thing is like, I had my daughter and I, 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 was, I was so busy the year after I mean, it was things that were set in motion before I was pregnant, but still, I, I couldn't believe how much work I, I, I had to do. But I, I was sort of in the trenches and sleep deprived, and if it wasn't for my parents that took care of her so much, I couldn't have gotten any work done. I mean, it was... So in a way, I've been lucky because I've had a family, a supportive family that has helped when I needed so that I could make the work. Otherwise, I have no idea how the work would get done. And um, when you say, like, how has it, if, if it's changed my work, I, I, I'm not sure I can answer that yet, because I feel like I'm still in the, like, in the trenches. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know how, like, maybe a few years from now, I'll be able to look back. Yeah, it'll be a like, hindsight. Has my yeah. work shifted in a yeah. way? Yeah, yeah. But I do find it refreshing to hear her, like, to see her, like, when she watches me work. We share a living room. That's my studio right now. And so I'm in her space, she's in my space. She's looking at me for like when she was one, I would say, mama, art project, no touch. And no touch, and I would go like that. And, and, and she learned that. And so she knows not to come, like she walks around the art project and she doesn't touch it. Or she dares me, like she puts a finger like Because she's and, three now. Or she yeah. hugs it like this, but leaving enough space. Because yeah. she knows, like, no touch. But then she's also like my best critic because she comes in and she's like, Mama, it's beautiful. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> what does that mean? I say. And she gives me her whole interpretation. So I'm sometimes just, I don't know, maybe it's, sometimes I just want to make what she said that the thing was instead of all this heavy conceptual stuff that I'm trying to put into it. It's like, I should just be doing what she just said. It's yeah. way more fun than what I'm trying to, you know. Yeah, you know, I <laughs> the think meaning I'm trying there, to there's so it. much in that. And I think, you know, like the women I have talked to that, you know, have had the hindsight because their kids are all teenagers now or whatever, is it's like the embracing being funny thing. Like, I, you know, I'm funny, so why is my work not funny? It's the same when you become a mother, right? It's like that stuff, those funny moments or those hard moments or whatever, they influence who you are and the work that you make, so why not bring them in? It'll be interesting to see where and it goes. I'm a little bit jealous, too, of her because she, she puts a paper, and it doesn't matter what paper it is, and she grabs some paint, and she's just started, you know, <laughs> and she goes like that, and it's done. Yeah. And she does this little, like, artistic thing. And, Butterfly genital. And done. I was like, how do you know it's done? And she's like, come on, it's done. And, <laughs> you know, and here I'm, like, at my, my table, like, is it done? Is it good enough? Is it, does it look like this? Is it, you know, I'm, and I'm just going crazy over here. And she just, you know, I, I just love to see, like, that. Like, sometimes I wish, like, can I actually go back to that moment where you just throw it on the paper and doesn't matter who sees it, it's totally not uh, I know that's, full of that's, all this. That was the whole feather glitter macaroni thing, right? Yeah. Like, there's something so freeing about that. It would be so nice if you could take a pill or figure out a way to like transport yourself back to, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. 
for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, and I can't wait to see what is next. And um, when is that show? Okay, October 2019, so we'll be watching to see yes, if any drawings back. get back in. I will come back in a heartbeat. Are you kidding? It's snowing at home right now. <laughs> and I floated in a pool for three hours this morning <laughs> without a kid around to say, can we go do this or that? No, I'm floating right now. It was awesome. But next time you have to bring your son. Yeah, next time I will bring him. Yeah. Or the time after that. Whatever. <laughs> uh, it's okay, he doesn't listen to this podcast. He will never know that I said that. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. And thank you so much to Smoka for having us here. And this will be up in a couple of weeks on the podcast. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I hope. I think it all recorded. It looks like it did. <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. Aren't they both so inspiring? If you are anywhere near Scottsdale, Arizona, be sure to pop into Smoka to see the fabulous group show that Saskia's work is part of. It's titled Counter Landscapes, Performative Actions from the 1970s till now. It's going to be up until January 19th, 2020, so you've got time to get in there. Okay, so back to Monica's workshop exercise that I mentioned earlier. I think I've got most of the details straight, but I might ad lib a tiny bit. <laughs> okay, so you can do this project by setting up like, let's say three Pinterest boards. You can set them to private if you want to. If you want to make an actual object, make three mood boards with poster board or whatever you've got handy. Now, you have to decide what those three boards are gonna be. What do you covet about other artwork? Do you love landscapes? Are you always drawn to text-based pieces? Maybe anything yellow is your jam. Once you have those themes chosen, start gathering. So here's the thing, if you and I both started a landscape Pinterest board, they would be completely different because there are a lot of ways to interpret landscape, right? Yes, so keep pinning or cutting and pasting onto your boards and you're gonna start to see a pattern show up. Maybe it turns out you actually love vintage looking landscapes that are mainly created using a grayish blue palette where my board would probably be covered in collage landscapes made from ripped up books. What this does is help you focus and begin to pinpoint what your voice might actually end up being. Instead of feeling like you need to take on landscapes with a capital L, your sandbox gets a lot smaller and easier to play in. Landscapes with a vintage feel and a muted, cloudy, kind of day palette. There, that's where you're starting from. Give this a try. Anytime you're feeling stuck or not sure which path you want to go down, make another board and do it again. To see all of the work and to get the links that Jennifer Saskia and I talked about, just pop over to my site, thejealouscurator.com, to see the full post. Thank you so much to Smoka for inviting me to their gorgeous gallery in lovely Scottsdale, Arizona, and giving me the chance to talk with their curator and a fabulous local artist a fabulous artist whose work and story happens to be in my latest book, A Big Important Artist, A Womanual. Thank you again to the fabulous women at Thrive for supporting this episode, and as always, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.